Hey, Never Sleepers. Thank you for tuning into this brand new episode of Ross Never Sleeps with our guest, Alex Bird. I'm your host, Alex Ross. It's been a big month for NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Both this show, Ross Never Sleeps, and Speech Bubble, our comic book podcast, hosted by Aaron Broverman, were both nominated for Toronto Web Fest's Best Podcast Series. Be sure to check out towebfest.com for more details on their festival. It's May 25th to the 27th at the CN Tower. Thank you to the independent web creators of Canada for the nods. This episode of RNS features another great Toronto talent chasing their dreams and using Toronto as their stage. Alex Bird is Toronto's prominent crooner, singer, actor, and all-around motivated artist. Check out alexbird.net for upcoming performances and listen to why chasing your dreams always makes for a fulfilling career. All this and more on this episode of Ross Never Sleeps. Alex Bird in the house. Are you working hard these days? I'm trying to. Yeah. No, I specifically didn't sleep. Oh, for this? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm honored. We'll see how it goes. Well, are you a sleeper? What's it like living the artist's dream or the artist's nightmare? Like, what's your day to day? You're a struggling artist. Mm-hmm. You're working hard. Mm-hmm. You're trying to make a name for yourself. Mm-hmm. What's day to day like? How do you turn your brain off when? Even just kind of like the environment or your atmosphere is trying to tell you to do other things or, you know, how do you break through the barriers of self-doubt? I always keep a part of my mind, no matter what I'm doing, focused on trying to find opportunities that might be creative or inspiring. So, for instance, my Joe job, my mom has owned pet stores since I was a little kid. So, I have a job there that I can do anytime and it's easy, but I'm always at the back of the pet store when there's no customers, I'll be writing music or I'll be singing, or I'll be writing, or I'll be working on monologues or scripts. So in terms of dealing with the pressure of finding time to be creative, I'm definitely a night owl. Like in terms of when my creative hour strikes, it's probably between 12 and four. It's very sometimes not surprising for me to go to bed at four or five or when the sun's coming up. If you had to make a short list of the things that you're striving to be successful at Mm -hmm. in your artistry, Mm -hmm. what would that list contain? It would contain, uh, it's such a big concept, the constant search for the truth. But I think there's something in that. So I'm always striving to find things that are true within myself, within others. One of the things that I try to do in my work is listening. I think listening is so important. That's the other thing that I really put a focus on. I mean, as much as I like talking and anybody in the industry likes talking, I do really try to listen to others because I think that's when I get my most creative, um, when something unexpected happens. So truthfulness, listening, and the other thing I'm always trying to do is just be open. And that's such a, a broad term, but for me, it's doing things that I wouldn't necessarily do. For instance, my jazz singing, I'm sort of a purist in terms of singing the standards and all those old kind of hits. But for instance, I, I hooked up with a, uh, 
a socialist rapper in Toronto a little while ago. And we're actually going to meet up. His name's Muhammad Ali. And we're going to meet up and do like a jazz social hip hop thing. That's so a, that's a great rap name. It's uh, it's great for that subject I matter. I know, right? It's perfect. And he's incredible. And he has a lot to say. And I have a lot to say. So it's going to be interesting. That's an example of me being open. Like when I started singing, I wouldn't be caught dead listening to hip hop or rap or, or all that kind of stuff. But now I open myself up to it because it doesn't matter what the style is. I think the messages uh, sort of permeate throughout any genre. And if you're listening to it and if you're open to it, you're going to be inspired by it. You're going to want to do something because of it. So It's an interesting concept to be a good performer, especially in singing. Mm-hmm. You have to be just as good as at listening, mm-hmm. which is an interesting concept. And I like that you bring that to the forefront. Because when I asked you that question, I, I expect you to be like singing, acting, writing. I was like, no, no, this kid's deep. So I really want to know your approach to singing. I want to know your favorite traditional jazz stuff. I want to know how you mm-hmm. got into singing. Maybe we should start from the beginning. I, yes, I think we should start there. It's a very interesting scenario. So, I mean, to get broadly in terms of, I came to Canada when I was six weeks old. I was adopted from an orphanage in Romania. Communism had just fallen and there was an influx of kids without homes. So my parents now from Mississauga wanted to have another kid, but they didn't want to have a kid. They wanted to adopt. And they were hearing on the news about all these kids that didn't have homes. So they actually went, my mother now went across toward the orphanages and and found me and chose me. And I came here when I was six weeks old. When I was two years old, my dad, for all his life, he's always been into jazz, jazz radio, uh, going to concerts. He used to go to the exhibition place when they had like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and all that kind of stuff. So when I was two... And my brother and sister were growing up listening to not jazz and not enjoying jazz. He's like, we'll try on this one. We'll nice. this too. We'll try. So I got taken to my first jazz show when I was two years old. Mm. And between the ages of two till, I mean, I still go to jazz with my dad, but probably two to 12, I just grew up at these smoky jazz bars at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, back when you could still smoke in the bars. And I would just take the music in. So I was a bit of an oddball in terms of, people noticing and people like, why is there a little kid? And why is he not asleep? And why is he enjoying this music? So when I decided to sing before I entered high school, it kind of made sense because I had all the musical knowledge behind me going to the jazz clubs. I didn't know it at the time, but when you're those young ages and you're sitting in front of some of the best jazz artists in Toronto and North America and the world, I guess it kind of permeates and it kind of hasn't influence on what you're going to do. That's where it sort of all started for me in terms of the music side of things. And now you're a young man. Yes. And your dad gets to enjoy the fruitfulness of his planting of the seed that is jazz music. Exactly. Yeah. He's always there at my gigs. He's, I mean, I don't have a car. I don't drive. So he drives me to gigs. Wow. Um, your biggest fan. My biggest fan. He's like a hockey dad, but a jazz dad. Right. We go, oh, I never thought of that till now. That's fantastic. So does he want to kind of maybe manage you at one point? You guys ever talk no, about no, that? No, no, uh, no. He doesn't do that sort of thing, but um, I, I would never be able to do that. <laughs> he he very much likes to, to be there at the gig, sitting quietly and just seeing everything and listening. It must be a bit of a trip for him. Right. I mean, would you say that he's the reason you're in this industry? Oh, probably. Yeah. At least the singing side of things, for sure. It, it started so young. I mean, I guess I got forced into it. I didn't have a, a choice, but, mm. but it worked. Well, you know, you, you see with your siblings, mm-hmm. 
it doesn't necessarily always work. No, not at all. He really tried hard to get my right. my siblings to come out to events. And it wasn't just like I sat there and I was sort of like a, it was washing over me, but there was something that I identified from a young age at those jazz clubs that I really enjoyed. It just seemed so effortless and so cool. I mean, one of the first things I remember, I got to be really good friends with Freddie Cole, who is Nat King Cole's younger brother. All right. And he used to, he still comes to Toronto, but he used to come a lot. And obviously he took a liking to me because I'm this little kid sitting in the front row, bopping to the music. And the first thing that really grabbed my attention was there was a song playing. I heard the melody. I heard it being played from the piano and the guitar and the drums and the bass, but they were all doing their own things at the same time. But it was all one cohesive song. It fascinated me as a little kid that it could all come together like that. So I think that's something that I, I latched onto. I once heard jazz explained as a conversation between four different instruments playing essentially four different songs, but it all comes together as one song. And when it's done right, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable that you can hear the parts separately and together mm -hmm. and embrace four virtuosos expressing themselves separately, mm -hmm. but ultimately expressing together. And mm -hmm. it was the, the one I, when I was first told that I was like, okay, what is this like deep message between behind the music? I get that. I went to Detroit a couple years ago to Baker's Keyboard Lounge mm -hmm. on some nth mile. And it's supposedly America's first jazz club. And it was there while I'm eating my deep fried catfish, mm -hmm. mac and cheese, the works, sticking out like a sore thumb, if you know what I mean, being like the single, I was by myself. Absolutely. I had some um, Detroit's finest medical marijuana as I, before I walked in. It's very jazz. Very jazz, my jazz cigarettes. You turned into Miles Davis. That's right. Moment. And I'm watching this foursome, this, what would you say, quartet? Quartet, yeah. My head goes to foursome. Well, I mean, mine was going there too. Okay, there you go. And um, I really understood what that meaning meant. What it, it finally came together to see four virtuosos playing what I could separate really easily individually. Mm -hmm. Different songs they were essentially by on, on their own essentially playing, coming mm -hmm. together to produce this amazing piece of music. What about jazz to you? that really sticks, you know, is there a distinction between a crooner and someone who sings jazz music? Absolutely. I think crooners, which I'm more accustomed to, I mean, and again, if you can call it a crooner, it's uh, a jazz singer, someone like Ella Fitzgerald, although she did standard songs, she had the capability to sound like an instrument in terms of scat singing and all that kind of stuff, which later turned into a lot of the I mean, the singers today, they, they go on all those runs and trills and vocal exercises, and it's exciting, but it came from jazz. It came from jazz singing. And the crooner side of things is, well, it's, it's the smooth style, right? It's just the simple singing. You might play with the melody, but you're not adding any sort of extra that a lot of the jazz singers do. Um, so in terms of what it may be today, for me, it always goes back to the story of it, whether there's lyrics and whether you're listening to just musicians playing, there's still a story going on or whether it's a singer, there's a story there. That's why I relate to it so much. I mean, a lot of songwriting today is fantastic, but there's also some songs go to a club. What's the story? It's basically booty. It's a booty story. It's a story about booty. It's a story about booty. And you know, there were a lot of jazz songs about booty, but they just sound better. Um, there's definitely a, a classier approach mm. to the subject matter because mm. let's be honest 
most popular music is about relationships. Absolutely. Whether they are more intimate than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, when I think about, you know, um, Nina Simone, Mm. Ray Charles, these are my Mm go-tos. So... They're not explicit, but their subject matter can only, always be construed as explicit on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. That's mm-hmm. that's what I like about jazz. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's a story. Mm-hmm. And as same with crooning, for sure. You're telling a story. I mean, I think today, a lot of us are more familiar with the Bublés. Uh, you know, the Dinos and and the, the Rat Packs are of yesteryear, but we always are going to remember. Like, I think for Sinatra, are, it's kind of like the Beatles. Yes. So, they're always kind of be figureheads. But today, you're right. It's it's almost like we're mix mashing, we're connecting. And that's just how life is with the power of the internet. If you're not good at more than like a few things, you're going to be overshadowed by the talent the people who have more talent like that's why i like lady gaga Mm. because she's She's fantastic yeah she's talent to the nth degree like there's so many facets to her talent that's why i like prince yep you know i mean i've been on an amy winehouse bender too i mean another perfect example Uh, it's ridiculous yeah and and and, you know part of their genius also affects the part in their life that it triggers addiction and and you know i'm not going to get too much into that but you yourself, you're a singer, crooner, you write, you perform, you act. Mm-hmm. Is this because it's 2017, we're in a day and age where you have to be on top of all these things? It's not just enough to be a pretty face. It's not just enough to be a good singer. It's just not enough. Mm-hmm. Is it never enough? When when do you realize that you're spreading yourself too thin and making sure that you're doing the right things for your career? Or is it, you know, whatever I can get? is ultimately going to help my career. I, d- I don't agree with the whatever you get helps your career because I've also turned down a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm nobody at this point, but I've turned down stuff because it doesn't feel right. And I think if you are working on something, whether it's a piece of music or or it's a script or something, if it feels right, if you think you can do something with it, then I think you should be doing it. So it doesn't, for me, doing too much... If you're doing the right things, then it's not too much. And in terms of uh, today, a lot of people, you know, you need to, everyone's a songwriter now and and you need to act, you need to dance, you need to do this kind of stuff. Uh, but back then, a lot of those guys, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, they sang, they danced, they were in the movies. A lot of them didn't write their music just because back then there was such a wealth of songwriters like the Gershwins and Harold Arlen and old songwriters like that. So there wasn't a need to write your own music. And that's one of the pressures I feel sometimes. Like I can write music. I've been writing more music uh, over the past couple of years, just trying to develop my own voice in terms of that, jazz and not jazz. But there is a pressure because I look back at those singers that I look up to and they didn't have to write their own songs. That was the beauty of the music is you could have Frank Sinatra do They Can't Take That Away From Me and Ella Fitzgerald do it and Tony Bennett do it and Bobby Darin do it and Nat King Cole do it. Same song, but it's completely different each time. And I found that fascinating. So I think that's why I will continue to write my own music, but I'm going to be, at the end of the day, sitting on that stage with a piano and a spotlight, singing 
they can't take that away from me or something. I want to hear this list. Yeah, no, I, I need to know your favorite traditionals. Absolutely. Um, mostly because just like my point before about the figureheads of the industry, whether they were a face or mm-hmm. a, a talent like Sinatra mm-hmm. or Simone, but more so the songs that represented their careers. Mm-hmm. So what are the essentials that... You know, no question, you can go to the Rex tonight at an open mic mm-hmm. and the pianist will know exactly when you say these few songs. What mm-hmm. are they? Oh, it'd probably be, they can't take that away from me. Who made that one famous? Oh, th- that's the thing. Frank Sinatra's version is incredibly famous, but then you have Ella Fitzgerald and her version, which is incredibly famous. And you have Tony Bennett's, which is in its own right, incredibly famous. That's what I'm trying to say about in terms of back then, everybody had a hit version of it. So it comes and goes. I think the big songs uh, in the the jazz canon, like they can't take that away from me. I keep going to that one just because it's been done so many times. That's not anybody's. If you go to like Fly Me to the Moon or New York, New York, who are you going to think of? Sinatra. Exactly. Um, So I think in terms of like, if I went to the Rex tonight, they can't take that away from me. Um, I love the song Bye Bye Blackbird. Is a really fantastic old song. Sammy Davis Jr. has probably my favorite version of it. Nice. Uh, love Sammy. I love Sammy. He's fantastic. Yeah, he did, I love the whole He did back. everything. He did everything. Triple, quadruple yeah. threat. No question. It's it's tough for me because I'm still trying to break into the clubs. There's open mics. But it's tough for me to get gigs because a lot of the stuff I get presented are private events. They specifically want Frank Sinatra crooners. They want Fly Me to the Moon. They want New York, New York. And I don't do that stuff. I don't sing those songs. I purposely don't do it. Maybe I'm making the wrong mistake. I've had people sort of take me aside and be like, but you need to do that and then you can do the other ones. But I don't want to do the other ones. I want to do the things that I think are important because there are so many lost gems in the uh, Great American Songbook, the standards, that people haven't recorded in maybe some of, some of the songs that I sing at my, my gigs, people haven't done them in 30, 40 years, 50 years. Like which? Oh my gosh, there's, there's an old Bobby Darren song Mac the Knife, Beyond the Sea, right? He started in rock and roll, then he went to jazz, and then he went to folk music, and then he found out that his sister was actually his mother, then he took off his toupee, it's a crazy story, and then he did protest songs before he went back to jazz and he passed away at the age of 36. But when he was in his not knowing what to do with my life phase, and everyone was just like hating him and booing him off stage. He did these incredible songs. So there's a song called Jive that Bobby Darren did. And I did a demo of it a few years ago. It is this lost, incredible gem. Nobody has ever heard it unless you're a Bobby Darren fan. So I bring it out and people automatically associate it maybe with me because it sounds fresh. It's not a well-known classic. So I have the opportunity to bring it to a new audience and make it my own or try to make it my own. And also allow people to go back and listen to those lost gems from those great artists. Bobby Darren is a gem. Like people don't realize the kind of impact that mm. Bobby Darren really had mm. on the music industry. Uh, when you see films, like did you see the Kem- Kevin Spacey film? Beyond the Sea is fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was a really good depiction. Uh, Ray. Ray is great. Everybody yeah. loves Ray. Yeah. Um, everybody loves, loves Ray. Everybody loves Ray. Whoa, right that would that be a one. crazy. <laughs> I'm picturing that now. Fusion. Oh, great. So I think more people need to really understand. I love when I hear about an artist that kind of everybody knows without really knowing. One of my favorite one favorite ones is Harry Nilsson. Yep. 
So I think Bobby Darren is in the same category as mm-hmm. Harry Nilsson. So yeah, who are some other artists that you're kind of bringing to the forefront now? And now you're talking my language because I get it. I, you're right. Like how many times can you hear the same songs even today? And we talk about things being overplayed mm-hmm. and it's funny talk about something being overplayed. That's 50 plus years old. It's kind of funny, <laughs> that's um, very true. but you're right. You know, if I'm going to a wedding, if I'm going to somewhere where there's a private performance i would like to hear the deeper cuts Mm -hmm. would i like to hear a little bit of both maybe uh but i think um a proper set list of kind of the classics that even the deep cuts can be just as enjoyable Mm -hmm. and i i want to embrace that so other than bobby darren who are some other artists well i mean i i I was gonna say peggy lee who is one of my favorites too but there's this jazz singer her name was Blossom Deary. I don't know if you've ever heard about her. No, I haven't. Okay, so you should check Blossom Deary out after this or when you get a chance. She was such a fantastic jazz singer. She played piano. She wrote her own songs. She sang a lot of the classics, but she also wrote like funny, weird ditties. There's a song about her lawyer. It's great. Uh, she had the highest squeaky voice you could ever imagine, and you wouldn't think that would be enjoyable to listen to. But you go back and you listen to her recordings, and there's just there's just a quality about her voice that uh, you can't match it to anybody else. So it, it automatically is enjoyable. I think she's sort of a lost gem. I mean, the Frank Sinatra's and stuff I'll go to right away, but I got into Vic Damone. He was a fantastic crooner at the time. Frank Sinatra said that he had the best pipes in the business. But I mean, when you come out at the same time as Frank Sinatra, there's only so much room. So a lot of these guys got, they, they had their success, but then a lot of these guys are also still singing. Like, Vic Damone's still alive. He's still singing. There was uh, Jack Jones. He was his claim to fame was the theme for the Love Boat, that old TV show. Oh yeah. But he's so much better than the theme for the Love Boat. He had had an incredible, incredible, incredible voice. Why do you think Sinatra was the cream of the crop? Was it like a media-driven thing? Is like, or was he actually the best? Media definitely helped into it. There was a lot of PR going into those early days when he broke away from. The big bands. It was big bands and then the singer. And he was the first person to go, well, I want to be the focus. So he broke away and everyone thought he was going to fail. And he didn't, obviously. I think in terms of was he the greatest? For me, I would say yes, just because his vocal quality is one thing. It's unparalleled. But also his phrasing, his ability to tell. We're going to go back to the story. Nobody can tell a story like Frank Sinatra. I mean, Billie Holiday did it, Ella Fitzgerald did it, Tony Bennett did it, but Frank was the one that sort of changed everything. It's almost a confidence, a sense of experience, in my opinion. Yeah. It's funny, I I really like Tony Bennett, and I think he's like a a modern or contemporary Mm. version of kind of what the Rat Pack kind of was, but he's kind of uh, a family or friendlier version of that. You know what I mean? I think it's just because of the time and how he's extended his career. I think uh, if uh, Sinatra was around today, I I feel like, you know, the the, the stupid shit that Justin Bieber gets pressed for, I I feel like it'd be kind of on a similar wavelength if there was somebody like Sinatra, like Dino, like these Mm. guys who are, you know, womanizers and, 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 you know, drunkards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, it's funny. It was a different time. And, and Tony Bennett, you know, he is, you can tell that he doesn't have the same confidence and experience that Sinatra did. It's it's a different confidence. But Sinatra's confidence was unparalleled just because he was like bigger, like in the early 60s, just as the Beatles were starting to come out just before, there was literally nobody bigger than than Frank Sinatra. Like the the 
amount of attention he could command was like for a period of time was like the Beatles and and Elvis combined, which is ridiculous to think about, but it's true. I mean, he he had an incredible beginning of his career, and then he was a nobody. Everyone dropped him. He went through a period of 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 like three four years with nothing, and then Capitol Records signed him and gave him another chance, and he developed his voice again to that classic Sinatra crooner confidence that you were talking about. Then he went into acting and he won two Oscars, right? Like, it's ridiculous. I didn't even know he won Oscars. Yeah, so he did, um, in 1944, just as the war was ending, there was this short film called The House I Live In, and it was this, the, the, it's, it was also a song, so it was being promoted as this song about in, uh, equality, and, and just because we're fighting people over there doesn't mean we can all be together here, we're like Americans. It was the rally the troops, right? And so he got an Oscar for that, and then when he... Uh, came up on his upswing and, and got signed to Capitol Records and was trying to get his career going back again. He got a part in that classic movie From Here to Eternity with Burt Lancaster and uh, Montgomery Clift, and he got the Best Supporting Actor for it. So, like dads who are like Star Wars fans mm. that have a young child and kind of sit them in front of the television and make them watch every single Star Wars, mm. does your dad just kind of sit you down and make you watch these films, this, these listen to these albums? No, so that's the thing. The only thing my dad sat me down for, quote unquote, was going to the jazz club. Wow. Everything else I found on my own. So, you've been in Toronto. You've, you're from the GTA. Yeah. Uh, what are the jazz clubs that stick out? Oh, it's tough because when I was a kid, um, so my go-to when I was a kid was the top of the Senator. I mean, the restaurant's still there. Uh, it's just uh, right next to Dundas Square there. Yeah, it's like Victoria. Yeah, Victoria, that's right. So it used to be top of the Senator. There was a restaurant in the bottom, there was a j the jazz club in the top, and it was probably one of the best places you could go. Wow. So that's where I learned a lot of my stuff. I mean, we got to be friends with the, the manager at the time named Sybil Walker, and anytime I would come with my dad, I would get a front table reserved. I didn't have to be craning in the back to sort of like as a little kid. Actually, the top of the center is now the Jazz Bistro. I was just going to say that. So now it's got new ownership. Uh, new ownership, but it, they brought back Sybil, the original manager from the top of the center. Because wow. she, she knows what she's doing. That's crazy. Yeah. But that's uh, uh, for those who don't know and those who do know, the fact that the Jazz Bistro now lands there because of the history is pretty important to the community. And it, and is. it seems like I listen to 91.1 almost religiously. Absolutely. Me too. Um, so you always hear that Jazz B Show is trying to bring in quality performances on a regular basis. It's a lot tougher these days. I mean, back when I was a kid, they used to be able to bring some of the best jazz greats in. I mean, I remember seeing Diana Krall there right before she got super, super famous when she came out from Nanaimo. And then she was performing in Toronto, and, and I got to know her a little bit before she took off, just going to all those shows. But it was a, a staple in the city. I mean, in terms of uh, the pilot used to do jazz. The pilot was where I saw my first concert. They're not going to do jazz anymore. Oh, they do performances, maybe. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think they might be. I, I, again, I hear that on 91.1. Maybe they're trying to bring it back. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're, they're definitely trying to bring it back because the community's growing again. This is true. They're... they're I, I do believe it's coming back in Toronto, but there aren't as many places as, as there used to be. For instance, one of my also all-time favorites, probably one of the just best jazz clubs in North America, was the Montreal Bistro. I forget what street it was on. I think it was off Adelaide or something further east. But it was one of the best jazz places in the city. It was run by this guy named Lothar. 
and he was a very tough, stern guy, but anytime we would go, he would say that I was a guest of the artist, so he would put us at the side table. And I saw so many incredible people there. I saw Oscar Peterson, and uh, the list goes on. But now, to give you an idea about where jazz is in the city compared to where it used to be, now it's a furniture store. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are other new venues opening up in the city. The Rex is a staple. Rex is a staple. Uh, poetry. Yep. yep. In Kensington Market. 120 Diner, I think, does some, some jazz open mic. Yeah, they, they're yep. pretty much a mixed bag of, of live stuff. The Reservoir Lounge. Reservoir Lounge is one of my favorite places. Yeah. That is a, that is a gem. I, I could picture you there. Have you? I've, I've, I've tried to give them my demo package. Reservoir, Reservoir Lounge. Lounge. Reservoir listening. Lounge. Please. Please. Well, I know who we're posting this on first. Oh, sweet. Uh, that's one of my favorite places. They do jazz jive. They got... Uh, Tyler Urema runs the show there, and he's one of the most incredible jazz boogie woogie. How do you get on a show? How do you get it? Like, what's what does it take? So this is what I'm saying. This is really tough. I mean, I have a demo behind me, and uh, it's from a couple years ago. I I have my demo package. I send it around. I go to some of the open mics. It's just a matter of being persistent. I mean, I I've really beefed my online presence in terms of um, using Instagram or or my Facebook music or YouTube to try and get my voice out there. I do a lot of bedroom recordings I sure have, i have a i have a studio i literally sing in my closet i know the feeling i sing quite so well first album's gonna be out of the closet and it's gonna confuse people but it's gonna today's be fantastic. day and age you should be do if you can't comfortably doing it do it in the place that makes you the most comfortable don't do it exactly and you don't have to wear pants well yeah we're not both of us aren't wearing pants we're currently. not wearing pants there's a table i can't see anything but, what, you know. what's your gear what you, what's your equipment for those who are trying to like break in to make their first demo how is it easy is it simple to put i mean coming from my experience mm. we are very simplified in the way we produce this yeah. podcast our network you know we don't like a lot of overhead we don't mm-hmm. like a lot of mm-hmm. obstacles what's your process in terms of the demo i got very lucky because one of my good friends he's a singer who's been in toronto for oh, canada for 40 years, Virgil Scott, everybody knows him in the music business. He heard me sing a long, long time ago and sort of befriended me and took him under his wing. And he actually recorded the demo for me. So he took me to a a studio in Port Credit and I got to have my first demo professionally done for like dirt cheap. So that was an experience because he knew that I needed to have that experience. So he brought me in, he produced it all for me. So that is one side of it. But in terms of my personal stuff, I mean, I I have my MacBook Air. I have my um, my Shure 55 old like Elvis style mic. I've got a little bit of an amplifier. I just plug it in. I, I set everything up. Literally, I'm singing amongst like my suit jackets and my pants and everything. It's ridiculous. And and I plug in and I start singing and I just see what sounds good. I I, I use um obviously I use Garage. I, I don't have like crazy programs because I I don't know all the functions like some people. But I just use GarageBand. I go in and I. I've always had like a a good ear in terms of what kind of sounds good. So I'll just spend extra time playing with settings and functions to get something that sounds good. If it sounds good, it sounds good. I I, I don't know how else to put it. So I post a lot of my stuff on YouTube and I have SoundCloud and Instagram, but it seems to get a good response. A lot of people ask what studio did I go to? And I'm like, I'm just in my closet. You want to plug all those places that we can see and hear? Yeah, absolutely. So on YouTube, you can just search Alex Bird, but I think the the actual link is Alex Bird Official YouTube. Instagram is Alex Bird 007. In terms of my website, it's just alexbird.net. .ca was taken and .com was taken. I'm going to have to fight somebody about that. We'll see what happens. What's the connection with the 007? 
Uh, when I was a little kid, it was basically like jazz and, and James Bond. Those go hand in hand, I think. I know, I know. I was The first movie I ever saw when I was a kid was Goldeneye. I was like five years old. It's probably not the, the movie to see as a kid, but I also saw Saving Private Ryan in theaters at eight. So, you know. I love that movie. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. So I got into hardcore into James Bond. It just seemed like the, the coolest, the music, the, the girls, the... I mean, it's very politically incorrect now, but there's there's something about those old movies that it sort of made me forget about all the cares you might have as a little kid. And I'm just thinking aloud, just, you know, you're young. You are enjoying kind of an old almost forgotten art that's reviving itself you know what are the main artists that you you listen to today mm. that aren't the frank sinatras but are the michael bublé's maybe or oh, the yeah. contemporary jazz or crooning mm. artists uh, um, michael bublé is fantastic uh my go-to would be harry connick jr i mean he came out before michael bublé and he does stuff still i like his cajun oh, twist oh yeah he's <clears throat> there's nobody like him. He's a real musician. He's fantastic. Uh, I mean, even going out of the jazz, I, I'm a really big fan of Lady Gaga, as we mentioned. I mean, her duet with Tony Bennett, that album is fantastic. Uh, I really love John Mayer. Oh, who doesn't? He's there's When he's not being a douchebag. When he's not being a douchebag. I'll forgive him a little bit. I could, even Frank Sinatra. It's part, of the, it's part of the genius. It's like his addiction is being a douchebag. It's true. You can be a genius without being a douchebag. It's very true. But for the most part, there's this sort of intrinsic douchebaggery that goes with I, I know with really good content it, it, yeah it, it's interesting it's it's a it's a paradigm or it's like um I, it, uh, it's, yeah it's, it, it, I think it just comes down to the fact that it's them protecting themselves sure I think it's also an ego thing or maybe it's like a mask that they mm-hmm. put on and maybe around their friends they're different and the media wants people like it's funny because we talk about the Rat Pack, and they were known for being yeah. this kind of person. It's, it's funny, you talk about being politically correct, and, and you're right, a lot of the past isn't politically correct to today's standards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's nice to think that when things are revived, like the jazz culture in Toronto being revived like it is, mm-hmm. it comes from a cleaner, happier, yeah, absolutely. more satisfying place. Does Toronto land on the map of jazz cities in North America? I think it used to be more so. The thing is, we have some of the best jazz artists in not only North America, but the world. And a lot of them struggle to get gigs in the city. And when they're not, they're teaching at Humber. And they're doing incredible things over there. That's where you came from. Yeah, I I was on the acting side of things, but I was around a little bit of the music. And the things that they're doing over there and the young people that are getting into jazz are incredible. And they're being taught by not only the best jazz artists in the city, but, but anywhere. Toronto's an incubator for talent. Absolutely. It always has been. It's sort of come from this interesting place. I think I think it's unassuming, but there's such incredible stuff happening. In terms of where I would go for jazz, I mean, New York City's still one of the places to be. Uh, I mean, LA has their jazz and... and I was in London a couple of years ago for my 25th birthday, and I went to Ronnie Scott's, which is this fantastical jazz club. And they have the, the main club, and they have the upstairs club, and the main club was closed, and they, they had a, a 2 a.m. jazz jam. And I, I went by myself to London, and I was exploring, and I didn't know how I was going to get back to my hotel, and so I, I went upstairs because I wanted to go see Ronnie Scott's. And 
the place, there was like 200 people in this very small room and we were all crowded around the stage and it was the, the, the most incredible jazz jam you've ever seen. And I was so enamored with the, the atmosphere and, and what was going on. I spent way too much on Manhattans. It's a place to do it. Yeah, you're like, I'll have one and that'll be 20 euros. And you're like, I'll have five more. But I was a part, of, I didn't talk to anybody. I was just kind of there by myself, but I, was, I, was, I felt like I was having a conversation with everybody at the same time. It was incredible. So London is a great place for jazz. New York is probably my favorite place. Any clubs stand out in New York? Birdland. For obvious reasons. Okay. My dream is, my, my big dream is to be shooting a movie in the day in New York, and then at night I have my set at Birdland. Wow. Bird at Birdland. We'll see if it, if it happens, but. So, acting is basically on the forefront just as much as singing is? Absolutely. When one isn't uh, sort of busy, I'll be doing the other. I'll be doing them both at the same time. But I went to, I did a year at George Brown Theater School for acting, and then I went to Humber and did film acting. I wanted to get both training because anybody who I've looked up to as an actor started out in theater and they have that craft under them. It's not just going to a movie set and turn your head that way and hit your mark and send in the light. There's something a lot deeper to it. So I went to school for acting and I, and I taught myself singing just by listening to the greats and the influence of going to the, the clubs when I was a kid. And, you know, acting and singing go hand in hand when you mm -hmm. look at the greats that you're following in the footsteps of Elvis, yep. Frank Sinatra. At least you are aware that acting is also on the forefront, at least in the early stages of performing and singing, where mm -hmm. they were just kind of thrown into movies oh, eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is hilarious. I think any Elvis movie to me is a comedy, whether oh, it's not, oh. just because it's just kind of funny. Poor guy. He really Can't wanted be. to be a good actor. Right, right. They I mean, they wouldn't let them. Even the Rat Pack, you know what I mean? That's it's true. Like they, they had uh, some duds, but they were fun. I can't imagine them on set all being sober or like, I mean, there's definitely got to be some backyard shenanigans that we're not hearing, behind the scenes oh, shenanigans yeah. that we're not hearing. And, and when they did movies together, they, they specifically would not start shooting until like mid afternoon because that's when they would <laughs> that's when they would get up because they were performing probably the night before. Oh, yeah, they would do basically four or five shows a night till 5 a.m. It's ridiculous. I have this, I have this uh, bootleg. It was probably one of the first bootleg albums. I have a big record collection. And it comes from this place in Philadelphia, I think, called the Sinatrama Room. And they had the Rat Pack there for four nights, and they did four shows a night. And the owner decided, I'm going to record one of the shows unofficially. He couldn't do anything with it. He packaged them up in these... He took album covers of the day and then glued this phony looking Rat Pack cover over them. So anybody who has these in the world, they're like all like really makeshift. But the album is the Rat Pack live at the Sinatrama Room and it's the 4 a.m. show. Wow. And Sammy Davis Jr. can't sing. His voice is completely shot. He's like screeching. Uh, he mentions in the album like it's... I think he turns away and says, holy Christ, it's 4.15. And then, you know, Dean's coming out and he sounds like he's actually drunk and Sinatra's screaming. And it's, it's, it's such fun to listen to, to hear that side of things. It's not smooth. It's not sort of, it's fun, but it's not like the classic smooth crooner stuff. Does that lifestyle exist today? Like, do you think you could actually be working these New York clubs till 5 a.m., hitting the bottle every day? Or do you think these guys <laughs> just partied so hard? And, and if you look at how long they lasted life-wise... That's true. Um, I don't want to be hitting the bottle that much. I mean, I like to hit the bottle, but... What's uh, your drink of choice? Uh, probably Glenfiddich. All right. Yeah, I'm a big scotch guy. Okay. 
Or if we're going beer, I'd probably go Stella. I really like Stella or Stiegel. Stiegel's Do you need to have a drink on stage? No, but one of my uh, one of my things sometimes I'll I'll uh, order a drink as I'm doing a song. All right, and, part of uh, the story, and we'll see if I get it or not. <laughs> uh, so that's always the fun part. So I just want to finish off with you promoting your acting. Yes, you're you're doing something for CBC. Yes, I shot uh, last spring for the 150th anniversary. CBC is doing this mini-series about Canada. So it's called Canada, the Story of Us. And uh, it takes you from the early days before Canada was a country to basically up to today. So I got cast in the World War II section of the uh, story. Uh, I think my episode is May 7th. And I play, it's a very small part, but for that part, it's like the, the focus of it. I play Canada's first RCAF pilot who went up and shot down Nazis in the Battle of the Britain. His name was Ernie McNabb. So we were part of the RAF with Britain, and then we decided and needed to have our own Air Force. It was the RCF, and he was the first commander. So I have this. I went on set. We went up to, I think it was, I forget which airfield we went up to. It was a little little bit north. We shot in, uh, it, was, it was about 25, 26 degrees, and I'm wearing original World War II stuff. So I've got wool on and, uh, and a life jacket preserver and another jacket and gloves and a helmet. And I had to get in and out of this cockpit for like an hour and a half and and do a fake dogfight. And I, I think I lost 10 pounds. And if you saw me right now, for those of you who can't see me, I already I only weigh 110 pounds. My resume says 120. Don't tell anybody. Uh, so losing 10 pounds for me is, is, is death. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was a perfect day to shoot. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was, it was incredible. Uh, everyone on set was fantastic. And, and what we shot, I made... I made the trailer for the show and, and it looked really, really sweet. I'm really excited to Amazing. see how it turns out. And you can check out Alex's upcoming tour dates and any up shows at alexbird.net. I want to thank my guest today, Alex Bird. Uh, I want to throw one of your songs at the end of this and make us seem cool. Will you Please. give us permission to give yeah, it? What, what, so, you want, to, you want to tell us what song we're hearing right now? Um, oh, what song should we do? Well, uh, it's not my, my standard jazz, but why don't you put, put on the um, Bobby Darren's Jive? But sung by Alex sung Bird. By, sung by me. You're listening to Never Sleeps Network Radio, Alex Bird singing Bobby Darren's Jive. Never sleepers, sleep tight. Staring at the sun, I've been stoned since half past one. Jai's alive and nine to five, my main man I've got my paper roll I slow down, getting old Jai's alive from nine to five, my main man I got a cloudy day woman to make my bed and cook for me But when I'm gone, a year too long she knows not to look for me Because I'll be back when evening comes Sleeping through them crashing drums Jive's alive and nine to five, my main man Do 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 do
So make my bed and cook for me When I'm gone a year too long She knows not to look for me Cause I'll be back when evening comes Sleeping through them crashing drums Jive's alive from nine to five, my main man Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.